Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. So glad you found us. If this is your first time, we want to give a special welcome to you and say thanks for checking us out. And and if this is your spiritual home, we say welcome to you and say thanks for being with us today. We're in our series here uh, called The Return of the King, where we're looking at the second coming of Jesus Christ, partly to help just put some context to just this crazy season that we find ourselves in, to actually help maybe point us to the grand narrative that God has been writing since the foundations of time, and to be reminded that even though things are chaotic outside in the world, uh, that there is a promise that we have and a, a hope and a fulfillment of what God is going to do through and in his people as we continue to be the kingdom. And yet at the same time, I think there's so much confusion about just where science falls into, how does the world start, and even the idea of how does the world begin. So much in our culture today pushes against the story that God has been writing through his scriptures. And so in this season, just leaning into this book of uh, Revelation, the last uh, book in the, the New Testament, where we have for the last couple of weeks looked at just what does it mean to understand and how does this impact our lives today? I know it's stranded thoughts for some, and it's like I really don't understand why we want to talk about the second coming. At the same time, I think it can help give us a focus and a perspective on all that God's doing and to see that there's a larger story that we get to be a part of. We're in week three of this series, and we know that Jesus promised us in Revelation chapter 22 that he would be coming again, and that it would be coming soon. Now for me, I figured out, I think in this last season, that the fall of the year is like my favorite time. Because every day during the fall, it gets a little crisper and a little cooler, and the leaves fall um, fall off the tree, and all of that reminds us that there is a promise of Christmas that's coming. And I think for me, Christmas is like the most amazing day, uh, the most amazing time of the year. It's where we get to be with all of our favorite people, where we get to eat the favorite foods that we love. And uh, for me, I get to watch just the eyes of uh, the children, even here at church, as they lean into hearing the story told once again. And maybe somewhere in that, I get to take a nap, uh, because taking a nap in the afternoon is a great thing, right? Uh, One of the most amazing things that God has given us as human beings is the capacity to think about the future to actually be forward-thinking, to actually anticipate things that are coming. Now, sometimes that weighs us down and creates anxiety, but if we can offer a perspective this morning as we look at the scriptures to see that God is still in charge, and even in the, as we begin a third year of this global pandemic, that even in the midst of all the, the uncertainty, there is still the promise of his word and the truth that comes from being his people. And it's because of the promise of Christmas that I don't think any of us have to be depressed. Uh, So when the leaves start falling, in fact, I love uh, riding my mountain bike through the bike trails this time of year, the the crunching sound, because it points to the fact that Christmas is coming and we can actually look forward to those things. Here's a big idea I want to begin with today, that looking forward to something really good can get you through some really bad times. And this may be why God tells us so much and so often what his coming back will be like. The scriptures tell us that on the day Jesus returns, all of us who know him are going to be caught up in it. That's the phrase Paul uses to describe what happens to humans when Jesus returns. We get caught up. Here's what Paul says. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, 
and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Do me a favor if you're able. Stand up for just a minute. Now, once you're up, try doing this. Try jumping up. Jumping up. Now, the truth is, right, imagine doing that instead of gravity that sort of holds us down, brings you back to the ground, that we just kept going up. That would be an amazing experience, wouldn't it? Imagine doing that instead of exerting the effort to jump, you just sort of started floating upwards into the heavens. That's what will happen at the moment of Jesus' return. We will be caught up, Paul says. The word in the original language means to be seized or to be snatched up with a sudden swoop. And for all of us, the idea of Christ returning should be an encouragement, just like maybe when you were a child and your father came home from work or when you got to go visit your grandparents and you saw them again. Just the beauty of what it means to be in relationship. And that's what the return of Christ can be for us. You and I are going to go through many days where it feels like the temperature is going to get colder and our days get shorter. And having this moment to look forward to is going to give us lots of hope and anticipation. So in this third week of our series, The Return of the King, I want to walk us through a timeline leading up to the minute of Christ's return. And I want to show you what the return will be like and how you'll experience it if it happens while you're still alive. And I want to show you on the timeline of history when most biblical scholars think that moment will happen. So if you're ready to dig in, to learn something new with me today, uh, repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, speak to me. Amen. I do know my friends at uh, Brian Baptist are leaning into a similar series on uh, the book of Revelation specifically. And I really appreciated Pastor Dan Krause sharing about how in these kinds of conversations, particularly the things we're going to talk about today, that, you know, as Christians, we can, there are certain things that we hold tight about our faith, about the person and work of Christ, about the atonement, about the work that Christ has done on our behalf, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. But Dan talked about how it's really useful in these times when we talk about these things, because there's a lot that we don't know is that we have our hands open and that we're open to hear what God's word would say to us today. Now, we learned a few weeks ago that a couple things that are sure about the return of Christ. One, that no one knows the, the day nor the hour. But there are some things where we can place it within the time frame of three major time periods that are going to take place during what we call the last days. Let me walk you through these events briefly and quickly. The three periods at the end of days. The last seven years of life on planet Earth, as we now know it, will be what the Bible calls the tribulation. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days. The word there, distress, actually means tribulation. Now, the prophet Daniel described the tribulation period way back in 600 BC, and he said this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. That's Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. The word weeks here is literally sevens. 
And so Daniel is saying God is going to do some transforming work in the Jewish people for a period of 77s. Okay, follow along here because we're going to do some math over the next few verses to help unpack this. He goes on to say, Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. That's 77s plus 62 sevens. See if we can map these out in history. Following the Babylonian exile of the Jews, Artaxerxes decreed that Nehemiah should return to Jerusalem and rebuild it. In the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, he and the people rebuild the wall of Jerusalem in a miraculous 56 days. And it's an incredible story. But it takes another 49 years to rebuild the rest of the city. So here's the math. 7 times 7 equals 49 years. Artaxerxes issued his decree in 457 BC. And so Daniel goes on to say here, after those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. This is a prediction, scholars believe, of the Messiah's first coming and death. So here's the math. In year 457 BC, we add to that the 49 years, and that gets us to 408 BC. And then we take the 62 times 7, that's 434 years, and we add that to the 408 B.C., and that gets us to 26 A.D., which, when you think about it, is about the time that Jesus started his earthly ministry. Daniel continues, The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. That's verse 26 of chapter 9. Now, what's interesting here, we believe that the coming ruler was Titus, who ended up destroying the city of Jerusalem and its sanctuary, its temple, in 70 AD. Now, keep following here because in the verse there was one more 7 that's left. So we take 67 plus 7 equals 69. But Daniel says in verse 24 that 70 weeks were decreed for God to deal with his people. So what happened to the 70th week? That was reserved for another ruler, another ruler who was yet to come. We know that this coming ruler is what we call the Antichrist. Daniel says he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Now, one week or one seven is seven years. And this is how we know the tribulation will last seven years. Daniel told us this 2,500 years ago. To complete the prophecy, Daniel says this, But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. That's Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Again, as biblical scholars look at this, they say the middle of the week means the middle of the seven. So half of seven is three and a half. The final years of the planet Earth as we know it will be a time of what's called tribulation. The second half of the tribulation is known as the Great Tribulation because at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the Antichrist stops people from worshiping and desecrates the temple. Now, we're going to talk about the tribulation more next week. Following these seven years of tribulation will come a new era on the earth, an era like none before, and it's called the Millennium. A millennium is a Latin word for 1,000, and when Jesus returns, he will rule on the earth for 1,000 years. Thinking of all the believers in history who died before Jesus' second coming, Revelation chapter 20 says this, They came to life and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1,000 years were completed. This is the first resurrection, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. At the climax of the tribulation, Jesus will return from heaven, riding on a white horse, the scriptures say, accompanied by the hosts of heaven, and he will end the war of Armageddon 
and bring peace to the world for a thousand years. The millennium will be an incredible time to be alive, and we'll talk more about that a couple weeks from now. Following this thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth will come the final era, or what is called the eternal state of our universe. Its simple title is the new creation. At the end of Jesus' thousand years on earth, he will release Satan from his temporary imprisonment, and once more Satan will lead a rebellion. Only this time, it will be with the unsaved sons of men, the scriptures tell us. At that point, God will decree that our planet has run its course and replace it with what he calls the new creation. Here's the description. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. And we're going to talk about the new creation as we wrap up our series here in a few weeks. So let's get to the great catching up. That's what we're going to spend some time on today. Or what we call the rapture of the church. Because we know that one day Jesus is going to burst forth from the clouds. And it's going to be in all of his glory. We wonder what that will be like for us. There's three passages in the New Testament that describe this, uh, this event. One of them is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, We do not want to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 18. God wants you to know about his return and the moment of his return. He doesn't want you to be uninformed is what scripture tells us. So what will that return be like? Well, the first thing we learn from verse 16 is the Lord will descend. He'll come down to earth and 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven. Someday soon, he's going to descend back to the earth. And it's at that time that he'll give a loud command after which the archangel, who is probably Michael, the warrior angel as we know him, will verbally summon all believers who have died and are waiting in the temporary heaven for a new physical body. And as the archangel commands these dead believers to arise, the archangel will summon all believers and blow his trumpet. And it's at that sound that the dead in Christ will rise. Very similar to the way Jesus rose on Easter morning, they'll have physical bodies that are like but not exactly like their previous bodies. When Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him at first, but they did recognize him eventually. An instant after all dead believers assemble before their resting places, the alive in Christ will rise and join them in the great ascension upwards. We won't need a Superman cape or an Iron Man suit. God will suspend gravitational laws for us so that we can ascend like Jesus ascended 2,000 years ago. And then within less than a second, we will meet him in the clouds, Paul says. In Roman times, when a general conquered a city, he didn't enter it immediately. He assembled his entourage outside the city, and he waited for the villagers to come out and meet him, maybe a mile or so outside the city, and then to accompany him back into the city, welcoming him as their new lord and king. And that's the picture here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then, is the second scripture that covers uh, Jesus' return. Paul says, listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and will be changed. For the corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and the mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 58. Paul is describing here what will happen to all believers during our trip upward to meet Jesus in the air. He says it twice, actually, that we will be changed in verse 52. We will be changed instantly in the twinkling of an eye. Follow with me on this for a moment. There is about an inch distance between the front of your iris to the back of your retina. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. At that speed, it takes about a 64th of a nanosecond to travel one inch. That's how fast we'll be changed. One minute, dead. The next minute, boom, a resurrected body. One minute, sad. The next, our tears will be wiped away for good, the scripture tells us. One minute in pain, the next, no more pain. When we read the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus' body, he could manipulate his molecules to pass through walls. He could eat fish. He could travel over long distances instantaneously. That's what our resurrected bodies will be like. When Jesus returns, we'll get those bodies in a 64th of a nanosecond. Incredible. The third passage that covers our condition at Jesus' return is in Revelation chapter 20. We've already read that passage a couple times, but here it is again. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was completed. This is the first resurrection. All believers who have died will be resurrected at Christ's return. If you're still alive when it happens, this will be the first moment you will see your deceased loved ones again. Right there, hanging out together in the air, an eternal reunion in the clouds, if you will. John says, this is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous unto glory, as the scriptures tell us. The second resurrection will be a resurrection of the unrighteous unto condemnation. So here's the question. When is this magnificent moment going to happen? When will the return take place? Well, this is where it gets even a little more interesting. There are three popular answers to this. And again, this is where our hands need to be open, where scripture can be interpreted a couple different ways, and we're not really sure. Uh, so let me uh, lay it out for you. There's one group of Bible-believing Christians who believe uh, in what is called the pre-tribulation rapture. This group believes that Jesus will return twice, once at the beginning of the tribulation to take the saints out to heaven, and spare us from the period of judgment and chaos while he judges the world. And a second group of Bible-believing Christians believe in what's called the mid-tribulation rapture. This group believes that Christians will go through the relatively mild first three and a half years of the tribulation, but they're gonna be taken out of the world when the Antichrist sets himself up as Lord in the temple at the three and a half year point. So we'll go through the first part of the tribulation, but be spared from the great tribulation when the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. And then a third group of Bible-believing Christians believe in what's called the post-tribulation rapture. This view believes we will be protected in the midst of God's judgment. Just as Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 15, 
He says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. And as God promised the church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, when he said, Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from an hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Most American evangelicals have heard of the pre-tribulation rapture because there was a popular book series called Left Behind. You may remember that. Or for some of us even older, there was a great book back in the 70s written by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. And then there was also the Ryrie Study Bible. So as you look at this, and as your pastor, I just want to lay out that there are three views. And to let you know that the most seminary-educated evangelical pastors do not hold to what's called the pre-tribulation rapture. We believe that we're going to go through the tribulation. The post-tribulation rapture position is known as historic premillennialism. I'm sorry, this is going to get a little complicated, but it's important for us to see because it's this historic premillennialism is the position that is held by most Christians throughout history and most Christians outside of the United States. The idea of the pre-trib rapture comes from an Englishman by the name of John Darby, who in 1856 wrote some things. Uh, None of the early church fathers believed in such a thing. This doctrine came along 1800 years after the church was born. The idea that we won't have to go through the tribulation is a very attractive one, right? And I would happily choose it if I had the chance. But at no time in history has God removed his people from trouble. He has kept them in the midst of trouble, but not removed them altogether. John Darby's teaching became so popular in England that it crossed the ocean and embedded itself in most American Bible colleges and the revival meetings that took place in that time. Once England had exported this teaching to us and the Americas, they ended up rejecting it and returned to a historic premillennialism. Jesus might return just before the tribulation begins, and that's what we call the pre-trib position. And he might return just before the second half of the tribulation begins, and that's what's called the mid-trib position. Or he might return at the end of the tribulation, and that's called the post-trib position. The good thing in all this is that all Bible-believing Christians agree that whatever that we believe about the timing of the rapture, that it's not a doctrine to divide us or disqualify anyone from going to heaven. These are sort of rudimentary conversations because Scripture isn't completely clear on these matters. So what I want to do now is just draw your attention to the verse that concludes each of the three passages we just read. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Therefore encourage one another with these words. In whatever time Jesus returns, he is returning. And we should be encouraged because this is the ultimate great moment where we will meet him face to face. In 1 Corinthians 15, ends with Paul saying, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Keep serving in the Lord because he will reward you when he comes. That's what Paul's saying. And then finally, John says to us here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, when we talk about the millennium, he says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this is what we know, friends. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back to claim us and to change us and to welcome us into an earthly kingdom under his rulership, and nothing and no one can stop him. In Revelation chapter 1, when John saw the resurrected Jesus, as he is now, he says what? When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. In Jesus' first advent, his first coming, his ministry on earth, 
He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was gentle and meek. Today, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He is so magnificent, he took John's breath away. John could not even stand in his presence. That's the Jesus who is returning, and his return will be glorious. Every promise he makes to you in Scripture will be as true during the tribulation as it was at the time of your birth. So pray this with me. One day, Jesus will return, and he will be glorious, and I will be changed forever. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.